0: Faith without works is dead. That's what God tells us in the Bible. He tells us this throughout the Bible, but he says it particularly in the letter of James. He says it in chapter 2. In the first chapter of James, God tells us that pure religion, religion that God approves of, is the religion that drives people toward the orphan and the widow. God loves religion. This whole saw about Christianity is about relationship. Not about religion. That's a mantra that's very dangerous and distorting. No, God loves religion. He loves the right kind of religion. And he says right here the religion he loves is the religion that drives us to help and advocate For orphans and widows. The first commandment is to love God. But Jesus wouldn't let us stop there. He said there's a second commandment. And it's like the first commandment. It's to love our neighbors as ourselves. The first commandment is worthless without the second commandment. Have you ever known a Christian who is so heavenly minded there of no earthly good? Have you ever known a Christian or a church that has such a narrow view of salvation that they focus on being rapture ready? They're so heaven centered that they have very little to say about how or why a Christian should care about urban planning or chemical engineering or securing clean water sources for developing nations. Why worry about justice or a flourishing world when it's all going to burn up? I bet some of you at some point in your life have crossed paths with that brand of Christianity. Some of us were raised in that type of environment. But there's a flip side to this coin, isn't there? The verse I referenced from James about widows and orphans, I only quoted half of it. Listen to the whole verse. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That whole first commandment and second commandment thing. Jesus didn't call it the first commandment for nothing. In strange and often unintended ways those of us who pursue justice and shalom, we too often end up secularizing the gospel. What I mean is that very often churches and people who see the real biblical emphasis on standing with the poor, too often churches and Christians who recognize in the Bible God's deep concern... That we join in the fight for justice. And we work for healing. Too often those of us who see that can grow angry at a Christianity that ignores the plight of the refugees. Too often what begins as a gospel motivated concern for justice can end up being a naturalized fixation on justice. In which the cross And and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus no longer appear. And what happens is that justice becomes something else altogether. It becomes an idol, a way of effectively naturalizing the gospel of flattening the gospel into a social amelioration project in which the particularity of Jesus as a revelation of God is strangely absent. Activism without a deep, passionate, daily devotion to communion with Jesus becomes a social agenda without anything to do with Jesus. This is a Frankensteinish Christianity in which this good but broken creation, instead of being the theater for the glory of God, becomes the echo chamber of my own political agenda. And my devotion to justice and shalom can become indistinguishable from the political platform of the Progressive Party. So, which is it? A mystical Christianity with its focus on a personal relationship of intimacy and holiness with Jesus? A pietism of being set apart? Is that Christianity? Or is Christianity an activist religion with its focus on justice and shalom and engagement? When we look at the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, we see that not only is that a false question, a false choice, Which is easy to recognize, right? I mean, very few of you in this room fell for the trap. I mean, probably most of you as I've presented that felt within you a resistance to being forced into such a choice. What we see in the good news of Jesus Christ is not only both a call to holy living, a call to a personal intimate relationship with God, and a call... To social engagement. What we see is not only that in the Gospel of Luke, in the life of Jesus, we have both, but here's the key we see how to have both. I think very few of us are living with that dualism anymore. Very few of us would stand up and say, Christianity is about the soul, let the body just burn. And very few of us that I know in this room would say Christianity is about social justice, holiness doesn't matter. The the challenge that we get in the Gospel of Luke is how to do both. How to hold them together. And the secret in Luke's Gospel is life in the Spirit. The way Jesus holds together mysticism and activism... Pietism and social justice. The key to his holding them together is his life in the spirit. It's Jesus' life in the spirit that empowers him to hold together the twin halves of Christianity that keep getting bifurcated in our two-party political system and our two-party church system. Let me show you how this plays out in Luke's gospel. When you read Luke's gospel and you start at the beginning and you read it like a fine novel, you'll notice that Jesus' life is characterized by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Go to the beginning. Look at Luke chapter 1. Right there, at Jesus when Jesus was conceived... Mary says, how can I have a baby, right? I've never been with a man. And the angel Gabriel says in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's how you will conceive Jesus. And then the Spirit is there throughout Mary's pregnancy. Look at verse 39. In those days, Mary's pregnant with with this Spirit-conceived Jesus. She arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, Judah, And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in Elizabeth's womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then there's the Spirit of of, of God again in verse 67. And then when Jesus is born and presented in the temple, it's in chapter 2, verse 25. And then again in verse 36. And then when Jesus begins his public ministry, in chapter 3, verse 22, we're told that the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, we're told that Jesus is led by the Spirit. And in verse 14, we're told that he operates in the power of the Spirit. And then in his inaugural sermon, which I read just a few moments ago, verse 16, we hear Jesus lay out the agenda for his life. And he clearly indicates that everything he does is rooted, it's driven by the Spirit of the Lord That is upon him. And this keeps going. Page after page after page. Over and over again. The spirit of God. Is what gives Jesus the power. To do what he does. It is the spirit of God. That is the power. At the center of Jesus's life. He he carries on his work. His vocation. His ministry. In the sphere of the spirit. By the power of the spirit. And so when we read Luke's gospel. And we see that social justice is at the heart of Luke's gospel. And here in which we read just earlier. Luke chapter 4. His inaugural sermon. Jesus' manifesto. It is political. Separation of religion and politics. Is a terrible move. Born in the enlightenment. That's our society's way of telling you, shut up, be quiet, stay in the corner, government can handle this. We see in Jesus' manifesto that the good news is not the announcement. That salvation is an escape pod for our souls, but it is about the inbreaking into governments and societies and neighborhoods and relationships right now of shalom. And then we keep reading in Luke's gospel, and there is Jesus, not dispatching people off. To some Casper convention in the sky. To escape this world. But instead there is Jesus announcing a kingdom that is characterized by justice for the poor. For the oppressed. For the vulnerable. And what we see is that the scope of God's salvation includes material issues now. Christ doesn't redeem souls. He redeems People, which are body and souls, He heals bodies. He feeds the crowds. In Luke's gospel, we get a clear glimpse of the social justice vision of the Bible. And in Luke's gospel, more than in any other gospel, we see Jesus in prayer and praise. And spiritual retreat. It's there in chapter one, chapter three, at Jesus' baptism. The way Luke talks about Jesus' baptism, he sidelines the baptism and foregrounds the fact that after the baptism, Jesus is in prayer. And in chapter six, verse 12, the night before Jesus picks from all of his followers who will be the 12 apostles, he prays all night long without sleeping. And in chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, once again, there is Jesus alone, by himself. This social justice crusader, pulling away from it all, getting very still, turning off his iPhone, shutting his door, and praying. And we can't overlook the remarkable teachings on prayer in chapter 11. In chapter 18. And then Luke, the only author of any gospel that tells us when he's hanging on the cross, he's praying. Luke's the only one that names Jesus' words from the cross as his praying. The list goes on and on. And the point, remember, is this. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is the mystic activist. He's the pietist crusader. He holds together an intense life of prayer and an intense engagement with the real problems of the world he lived in. They hold together in the life of Jesus. But here's the thing. The way they hold together is because of his life in the spirit. The spiritual life doesn't mean in Luke's gospel, non-material. It means big S, spiritual. It means the life of the spirit. Not the life that's subtracted from the world. But the life that is anointed and led by the spirit of God the spiritual life envisioned by Luke's gospel is none other than that which led Jesus to retreat in prayer to God and just as spiritual to push vigorously into the social problems of the day and to deal frequently and compassionately with the barriers that were isolating and marginalizing the powerless in Jesus life in the spirit Is spiritual life. And life in the spirit weaves together the twin halves of Christianity. Piety. Holiness. Intimate communion. Daily quiet time. All of that with vigorous activism. Justice work. World engagement. For Jesus life in the spirit doesn't just hold them together. It knits them together so that they are symbiotically related and each feeds the other. It's his prayer life that drives him into the world. It's his labor in the world that drives him into prayer. The key for Jesus to doing this is life in the spirit. And it's the key for us. Do you lean to one side or the other? Probably most of us do. Is it easier for you to go and do something for God or to get very still and to pray? Probably most of us kind of tilt to one side or the other. Scripture reading, justice work. Passion for personal morality, passion for the immigrant. Most of us tend to tilt one way Or the other could I have found you at any point in this past week actually physically literally sitting with the poor the underprivileged the powerless was there any moment in this past week when you were comforting them helping them is it breaking you is it dragging you into cynicism and despair and hopelessness could I have found you this week away from the busyness. Sitting quietly alone in prayer calm before the father do you find yourself longing more and more to pray are you coming to know God in the way in which in the best sort of family the child knows the mother and the father are you praying to know God in that way that is so intimate. To really talk about it. You would weep. Are you deeply moved. By a sense of the intimate presence of God. And is so, if so. Do you find yourself. Frustrated with your work. Because it's a distraction. Do you find yourself wishing you didn't have to attend to your daily chores so that you could be with the Father? You see, throughout the whole ministry of Jesus, he operates in the sphere of the Spirit. And his power is derived from his life in the Spirit. And over and over he tells us that this powerful Spirit of God is available to us. Luke's gospel is the preamble to what? What other book in the Bible? Acts. The apostles, they hardly do anything in Luke's gospel. They're the least active in Luke's gospel of any of the gospels. They're, they're hardly anything but observers. And, and often in Luke's gospel, they're included in Luke's description of the, all the crowd that's gathered around Jesus. But then in Acts, they're unleashed. And the world hasn't been the same. In in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John, his cousin, tells us that part of Jesus' work in our lives is to baptize us with the same spirit that was the source of Jesus' intricate weaving together of prayer and justice. In chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus promises us that the Father will give us the Holy Spirit if we just ask for him. In chapter 24, verse 49, in his final instructions before his ascension, Jesus reminds his disciples that the Father will generously give us his Spirit. And then when we turn to the second volume that Luke wrote, The book of Acts, when we turn there on the very first page and we listen to the verses Karin read to us just a little earlier, what is it that happens to Jesus' followers? Well, the beginning of Acts is a mirror of the beginning of Luke. At the beginning of Luke, the angel Gabriel promises Mary that the impossible in her will happen when what? the Holy Spirit comes upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And then at the beginning of Acts, we hear those same words said to the apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. God the Father does an impossible thing in us. He gives us The Holy Spirit. So that we. Ordinary mortals. Can become in a measure. What Jesus himself was. Part of God's future. Arriving in the present. A place. A living. Walking. Talking. Actual. Physical. Place. Where heaven and earth meet the means of god's kingdom moving ahead the spirit is given so that the church can share in the life and continuing work of jesus now that he has gone into god's dimension that is into heaven the holy spirit this strange personal presence of the living god He leads us and guides us and warns us and rebukes us and grieves within us when we fail and celebrates every small step we take toward our true inheritance. The Spirit is the enabling presence of God in your life to discern, to embrace, and to serve The redemptive purpose of God in the world today. The Holy Spirit is the power that puts into effect the will of God in our lives. So those who want to continue Jesus' mission must receive the Spirit. And move forward under the influence of the Spirit. And as we do, we'll discover... That the purpose and the role of the Holy Spirit in our life is to enable us to follow Jesus into the world with the good news that Jesus is Lord and that he has won the victory over the forces of evil and that a new world has opened up and we are able to help make that happen. The Holy Spirit is the enabling presence of God in our lives and our life in the Spirit cannot, therefore, be taken for granted. And that's really where I'm going with this this morning. Look, if Jesus couldn't pull it off without the Spirit, can you? Do you have a chance? When you read Luke's gospel, you see that Jesus himself, God's son, can't figure out his next move without praying all night. So why have you ever tried to do that? Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever prayed through the night? How many of you Recognize that your vocation to do it successfully, you've got to imitate Jesus and nurture your life in the spirit. How does Jesus nurture his life in the spirit? By balancing prayer and social justice. By balancing getting alone, away, seeking the face of God, this mystical, pietistic relationship with God. By balancing that with going right to the most difficult spots in his society. Right to the coal face of brokenness and injustice. We repeatedly find Jesus in the prayerful process of discerning God's will so that he can resist temptation. The, the temptations of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, I've been struck this last couple of weeks. They're vocational temptations. There's nothing wrong with turning bread um, rocks into bread. There is nothing wrong with a hungry person who has the power fixing himself a meal. What's wrong was that it was vocationally wrong. Not that it was metaphysically wrong. How will you make your choices? How will you know? what your vocation is and how to pull it off and how to say to to a boss or a culture or an institution, that's not the way for me to do this job. My calling is different. Jesus achieved this by balancing prayer, retreat, holiness, And getting very close to the most vulnerable. For Jesus, prayer and justice work require each other. They're symbiotic. Each leads to the other. Each cultivates the other. Look. Your vocation is tough. It is hard to be a student. Pleasing your teachers... Pleasing your roommates, pleasing your parents who are paying for you to do all of this, pleasing yourself. It's hard to be a teenager. Making everybody happy. You try to do the right thing and it's like you get decked. You missed it. And you were trying. Think about the full-time homemakers among us. Your job is so difficult. Some of you barely made it here this morning. You're tired. Physically. Emotionally. You're exhausted. You're overwhelmed. You work from sun up until way past sundown. No break. Worn out. How many of you? Homemakers. Don't raise your hands. I wonder how many of you cried this week. Because you're at an impossible job keeping house, raising children, going to a small group, being a good neighbor, feeling guilty for not doing enough, feeling bored for doing something so menial. After all, you got an education. Does this really justify that? And what about our doctors being abused by a profoundly flawed system that's driven more and more by money than responding to the dignity Of the individual human in front of you. Working in an intensely politically charged environment. And what about our school teachers? Can you make it another week? Have you thought about another career? Threatened by mediocrity on the one hand. And the tyranny of a system that actually works against you educating on the other hand. The list goes on and on. We're a group of tired people here this morning. We're tired because vocation is mission. Vocation is tough. Your vocation is your primary calling into this world. And that is why, no matter what job you pick, it will be marked by suffering. Because all work that matters to God is an engagement with the powers and the principalities. And so it will be marked by suffering. Homemakers, the depth of your struggle is an indicator of how far it is in the missional engagement with this world. Do you remember when Jesus is praying in Gethsemane that night before he's betrayed and crucified? And he asked the father what? Any other way. If there's any other way, please. Do I really have to go through the horrible fate that lay in store for me at my vocation? And what was the father's answer to Jesus? Yes, son, you do. You have to go through it there is no other way to do your job without this suffering. And what I'm saying to you is that if Jesus prayed like that, you can be sure you're going to have to pray like that too at your job. You can be sure that you will find yourself at whatever job you've got saying, really God? Is this what it takes to be a mother? Is this what it takes to be a grandmother? A grandfather? Do I have to suffer this way? I think about Paul and Carol Yoder. They've had more death and grief and loss in their life since I've known them over the last year than I've ever seen anybody. Really, God? Is that the way it has to be? For us to be the people you called us to be? Those who follow Jesus are called to live by the rules of the new world. Not the old one. And the old one doesn't like it. And although the life of heaven is designed to bring healing to the life of earth, the powers that presently run this earth have carved it up to their own advantage. And they resent any homemaker that tries to homemake for the kingdom. They resent any parent who tries to raise their kids for the kingdom. They resent any professor who tries to do their job for the kingdom. I think about Aaron Cook, criminal defense work. Brutal. Brutal. Not only does he get his teeth kicked in, day in and day out in the courts, but then he's a part of a conservative evangelical church that thinks the prosecution is always right, and defense lawyers are often just trying to get somebody off free of charge. Can you imagine having your vocation so deeply misunderstood? The powers, whether they are in politics or in the media or in the professions or in the business world, they they will bitterly resent any suggestion from Christians as to how things ought to be. And they will ravage your life. Suffering comes through our vocations. In the form of persecution, in the form of illness and depression and bereavement and moral dilemmas and poverty and tragedy and accidents and death. And the point is this it is precisely when we are suffering that we can most confidently expect the Spirit of God to be with us. Did you catch it in Luke chapter 4? Led by the Spirit of God, into the wilderness, where he fasted for 40 days and then was tempted by the devil. I'm not saying we should seek or court or, or court or long for suffering or martyrdom. No, We should never romanticize suffering. It would be a tragic mistake. But if and when it comes, in whatever guise, we know that as Paul says toward the end of the greatest chapter in the Bible written on the Spirit, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In your work, at your job, in your home, in your attempts to be a good neighbor, remember the way we can make it the way we can be nurtured into sustaining such attention-filled life is through our life in the Spirit. By balancing a life of prayer and labor, spiritual retreat and vocation. This is how we resist the separation of our work from Shalom, from the resurrection of Jesus because it is in the resurrection of Jesus that the principalities and powers are subjected to defeat. It is by nurturing our life in the Spirit that we refuse to unhook culture-making from sanctification. It's our life in the Spirit that holds together the work of justice and justification by faith. It is our life in the Spirit That calls us to keep our eyes focused on the crucified and resurrected one. And as we gather Sunday after Sunday in this room. Tired people. People who failed at our jobs. As we gathered here beat down prodigals that we are. And we gather around King Jesus. The ascended Jesus. And we look at him. We notice where he is looking. At the world. At his good but broken creation. We gather around the ascended Christ. Who reigns now in heaven. We praise him. We worship him. We gaze on his face. And we notice that he stands with his face. Back at the world we've just come here from. And so the God to whom we retreat. Is the creator God who refuses to give up on his creation. Getting alone in the secret place with this God can never be mere retreat. Every mystical moment doubles back to the world which the triune God identifies himself with. And we cannot meet with this God without having our gaze double back to the world. We refuse to take our life in the spirit for granted. Instead we nurture it through a balanced life of intense prayer. And really hard work. And when we do this. We remember that Jesus is the original activist. Who agitates a self-satisfied world. So severely that it provokes a murderous backlash. And so our activism Is rooted in faith. And so when we leave this room. And we go back home. To hard jobs. And hard lives. We do this. In the power of the spirit. We do this. Our service doesn't end with the dismissal. It ends with the commissioning. Why? Because we are being swept up by the spirit. To participate in God's own activism. You see the contemplative Christian must act in this world. With the brokenness in this community. Because the contemplative Christian comes to share God's desire for his creation. And the active Christian must pray. If not... The powers will destroy you and you will not make it. It is not a given. The stakes are huge. The undertow is there and you will drown in it. If you don't nurture your life in the spirit, let's pray.